one of four categories that will take up the focus of our attention this quarter. And I want to kind of give you this quick overview. When we study how we got the Bible, there are four big areas that we have to focus on. The first is on the category of inspiration. And when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about how God's Word was communicated from Him to us. This is going to be the focus of our study tonight in just a moment. Um, from, from there, once we understand inspiration, we then have to go on to the category of transmission how God's Word has been preserved and passed down over the centuries. Transmission will take up a good portion of our time because when we talk about this category, what we're ultimately looking at is, is how God's Word has been uh, um, uh, copied and, and shared and continued on from the time it was first written, some portions of it, 1,500, 1,600 uh, years ago. No, it's more than that. It was over a course of 1,500 years. But, but written centuries ago, how that information, particularly from the Old Testament, has been preserved and passed on to us today, and, and how scribes maintain the integrity of the text, and so on. We'll spend a good bit of time looking in the transmission section at what manuscripts exist today the, from the uh, the oldest manuscripts we have access to because the one issue you will discover that we have is we don't have any of the original copies. We don't have Paul's letter to the Romans signed by him and dated as the, 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 the original copy. We, we don't have that. So we have copies of the original text. And so we'll talk about, we'll look at what manuscripts exist. We'll talk about how we can be certain that the manuscripts that do exist are accurate We'll examine something called textual criticism and how that operates to ensure that we have an accurate reading of the text and so on. From transmission, we'll have to then look at the area of collection. Collection is how God's Word was, was collected and canonized into its current form. How were these 66 books that were written over a period of 15 or 1600 years, how were they then brought together into a collection known as the Old Testament and the New Testament? And, and how were other books excluded? And so on. So when we get to the collection part, we'll spend a good bit of time talking about the canon of the Old Testament, the canon of the New Testament, and how those were solidified. And then finally, we'll get to the fourth section, which is translation how God's Word was translated from the original languages of Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew into the language that we all use, which is English. And we'll spend a, a little bit of time talking about that toward, at the end of this quarter. But those are the four big categories that we're going to focus upon. Tonight we're going to turn our attention to inspiration. And really we're only going to be spending one night on this subject because it, it's fairly easy to discuss, fairly easy to... Um, cover. It doesn't take as much time to cover the subject of inspiration. But we need to begin by simply asking, what is inspiration? Um, unlike any other book, the Bible is a book written by both God and man, but it was not co-authored. It was not God and humans collaborating, or a human writing a draft with God and making revisions, or God giving ideas that the authors simply put into words. Instead, the Bible was inspired but what does that really mean? Well, inspiration means that the Bible has a divine origin and a divine authorization. 
That's where we need to begin. The English term inspiration is found only one time in all of Scripture. It appears in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And even in that text, the word inspired is only preserved in the King James Version and the New American or the New King James Version and the New American Standard Version. The New King James says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The New American Standard says all Scripture is inspired by God. Now those are the, the New King James being an update of the King James. Those translations are the only ones of the major translations that get used today that preserve the term inspiration. You see, the Greek term from which we get inspiration is a compound word joining the term for God with the term for breath and therefore can literally be translated God-breathed. And that's the terminology that appears in in some of the more modern translations like the English Standard Version and the New International Version. The English Standard says all, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the English Standard says all Scripture is breathed out by God. And the New International Version says all Scripture is God-breathed. The point is that this term refers to the fact that all Scripture originates with God. That's what this idea of inspiration and or God-breathed means. It originates with God. And even though this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, is the only verse that uses the term inspiration, it is not the only verse that refers to the divine origin of God's Word. So, for example, the author of Hebrews referred to the Bible's divine origin when he said in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 that in the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God spoke is the language that the author of Hebrews uses. Paul repeatedly indicated that the things he taught were divinely divinely derived. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, which I did not get added to the PowerPoint, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul said, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So he acknowledges the origin of his teachings as the Spirit. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 37, so another passage in 1 Corinthians, that's 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37, Paul wrote, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So this time, Paul doesn't just refer to the things he's taught, which could have been in person, could have been through his preaching. Now he's saying that the things he writes, that its origin is not himself, its origin is the Lord. And there's one other passage worth mentioning that Paul wrote. This one is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13. In that passage, he commended the Christians in Thessalonica because, as he said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, referring to himself and his ministerial partners, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. In all of those passages that I just referenced, 
Paul is indicating that the things he communicates, the things he teaches, the things he writes, all of that has a divine origin. And then Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 2, Peter indicated that what was spoken not only by the holy prophets, but also, by, also through the apostles, was the commandment of the Lord. That's 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 2. So all throughout Scripture you have references, and this is just a handful that I chose to use, but all throughout Scripture you have passages identifying God or the Holy Spirit or even Christ as the ultimate source of the information that they're sharing. So when we think about God in terms of the Godhead, that's the divine origin of Scripture. Now 2 Timothy chapter 3 uh, specifically identifies the Holy Spirit's involvement. So when we think of Scripture, um, I'm sorry, I said 2 Timothy chapter 3. I actually meant 2 Peter chapter 1, which we're going to get to in a minute, identifies the Holy Spirit's involvement. But when we talk about Scripture, when we talk about whether it's the Old Testament or the writings of the New Testament authors, Scripture clearly teaches that this is coming from God. And since God is the ultimate source of information for the Bible, that means the Bible is authoritative. In other words, there's nothing presented in the Bible that did not receive divine approval to be in there. That's interesting to think about. Because as you journey through Scripture, you'll see genealogical lists. Those received divine approval and, divine, and had a divine origin. You'll come across uh, architectural plans. You'll, you'll come across sections of Scripture that just seem dull to us. All of it, though, has a divine origin and possesses divine authorization to be in there. Notice, if you will, in Second Peter chapter 1, notice what Peter says about Scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. I know I'm kind of going fast. That's because I've got 11 pages to get through tonight. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter says this, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying is that when when, when, when people recorded the words of Scripture, they were not left to their own devices. God was directly involved in the writing of His Word. He ensured that the words the prophets recorded in Scripture were true. So when we talk about inspiration, we have to start by saying that inspiration means that the Bible has a divine origin and divine authorization. That's what Scripture teaches about itself. But it also means, inspiration also means that the Bible has human vocabulary and style. As is evident from the overview we did of biblical authors last week, God used actual people to record His message. And this is confirmed in some of the very verses we just read. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, we just looked at that one. And if you look at it again, you'll notice that the author of Hebrews referred to the human element 
involved in the recording of Scripture when he said, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. There's your human agency. And going back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Peter also acknowledged the human component of inspiration when he said, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the point is that, that these passages identify the authors of scriptures as agents through whom God recorded his message. That means that they, whether we're talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses in the Old Testament, or we're talking about Peter, Paul, and John in the New Testament, they were the immediate cause of the written word, but God was the ultimate cause of the written word. So inspiration means that humans were writing, but God was speaking. And that brings up an interesting question. If God is speaking and the, New Test or the biblical authors are writing, was this just a process of dictation? Were they just hearing God's words and writing those out verbatim? Were they robots, in essence? As one of the authors uh, whose book I use for reference said, they, were they automatons in the process? I would have to contend that they were doing more than just operating as recording secretaries. They wrote with full intent and consciousness and the normal exercise of their own literary styles and vocabularies, as one author said. And you can see this because the personalities of the authors aren't infringed upon in the process of writing. God used their personalities to convey His message. He controlled what, went, what was communicated in the sense of he authorized it and, and, and certainly made sure nothing was included that was outside of his will, but he allowed their own writing style, their own vocabulary, their own experiences, and even their own resources to be utilized. Let me give you a few examples. You can journey through the New Testament and come to various books of, of, of the New Testament and see that different authors have a... Have a uh, Pension for using different words more than others. Have you, if, if I say there's a New Testament author who loves the word love, do you know who that would be? John. In 1 John alone, that 1 John has 105 verses. John uses the word love 52 times in 105 verses in that one letter. I'm not even talking about his gospel. The gospel where he refers to himself as what? The beloved disciple. A gospel where he'll provide the new commandment for us. His gospel is full of love language as well. So John's preference for this terminology is not infringed upon as he's writing his documents. 
documents. That sounds so cold and callous to say documents. As he's writing his text for Scripture. I also think about Paul. When Paul writes, what you'll discover is that his own personal experiences are preserved in his writings. Turn over to Romans chapter 16 real quick. Romans chapter 16 is a unique chapter because for the most part, at least from verse 1 through verse 16 in that chapter, all Paul's doing is name dropping. He spends the first 16 verses of Romans 16 sending greetings to various people, 27 different named people in Romans 16. It's, it's almost like a, that's his Christmas card chapter. He's making sure he's acknowledging every person in Rome that he has a connection to. Now, in that moment, what we're seeing from Paul is, is we're seeing his own experiences and his own relationships being communicated as he's writing this inspired text. Paul, as we've noted, was keenly aware that what he wrote came from the Lord, that what he wrote wasn't his own. We've looked at a few verses where he said that, but even as he wrote, his, his, own, his own life is being utilized in communication. I also think about the fact that throughout Scripture you'll find references to various non-biblical texts. Have you ever realized that? That in the Bible, reference is made to non-biblical sources. The one that is probably the most familiar to you appears in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28. As Paul is preaching in Athens to the Areopagus, he quotes from a Greek poet. He even says, I'm, I'm quoting from one of your own poets in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Now that poet was not an inspired author, but Paul utilized that secular author to make his point in Acts chapter 17. It's a, it's a brilliant sermon, because if you compare this to his sermon in Pisidian Antioch back in chapter 13 of Acts, you'll see that in Acts 13, Every time he quotes something, he quotes from Mosaic Law, or he quotes from the Old Testament. Why? Because his audience is all Jews. But now he's in Athens, and his audience is all Greek philosophers. So he's going to quote from somebody they understand. In other words, he's not changing his message, but he is changing his methodology to communicate that message. It's, it's beautiful to study Paul's sermons. But as we look at Acts, what we have being preserved is reference to a non-biblical text because throughout the Bible, the author's resources are still being retained even as God is the one directing their message. Other non-biblical documents that get referenced, there are ones called the book of Jasher. It appears in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 13. And then in Judges chapter 14, or no, I'm sorry, that's not Judges, Jude verse 14, um, there's reference to the book of Enoch, which is a uh, uh, pseudepigraphal book that we know of. So there are references to non-biblical texts, which lets us know 
that in the context of writing, these authors were allowed to uh, retain some of their own personality, resources, and writing styles. Um, it's also very interesting to look at some of the literary devices that authors use throughout these biblical texts. You think about me as a preacher, I have some literary styles that I like to use in the crafting of my sermons. I really like alliteration. I like for my points to try to have the, the same beginning letter or the same sound. Maybe they rhyme. Maybe they end with the same thing. And truth be told, every preacher loves it, right, Ben? Because we like to have a literary function to our sermons that might help you remember the points we're making. You know what else I like? I love illustrations. I love humor on the front end of a sermon, and I love a meaningful story on the back end of a sermon. Maybe you figured that out by now. I spent 10 minutes on Michael Jordan on Sunday. Obviously, I like to do sports analogies. I like history analogies. I throw in the occasional poem. So we all have this tendency when we write to use some sort of literary devices. Throughout the, the Bible, you're going to come across unique literary devices that seem to show the personalities of the authors. So you'll come across uh, in the Gospels, you have parables. And some New Testament, some of the, the Gospel writers love to preserve parables. Others, not so much. You have far fewer parables in, say, John than you do in Matthew and Luke. You have, um, uh, Paul likes allegories. He likes to, to use allegories to make his point. So you can go to the book of Galatians, and he's going to use the Isaac and Ishmael scenario of the Old Testament to make points about Jews and Gentiles in the Christian era. You can even come across sections that really like to use metaphors and similes. James does a great job with metaphors. Think about his, his metaphors that he ties to our tongues. And when he talks about speech, he compares our tongues to a wildfire or to a ship's rudder, things like that. So these authors are retaining their particular, their, their particular literary devices that they like to use. So all of this that I'm referencing right now is ways in which we can look at Scripture and see that even though God is the one directing what is being written, He's allowing the uniqueness of each author to shine through. Ultimately, I like the definition of inspiration that Kyle Butt offers in his book, Behold the Word of God. And this is the definition he gave. The biblical definition of inspiration is the idea that the Holy Spirit moved the Bible writers to pen the words that he wanted, but allowed them to maintain their own unique style and personal experiences that fit the message. When you think about inspiration, you think about these authors, it's not that they're robots recording exactly the way it has to be done. It's that God is directing every word so that it's the right words, but so that it reflects the personalities of those who are writing. If, if in the process of inspiration, it was all monotone and monotonous, 
it wouldn't be as joyful to read Scripture. But because there is variety in the author's style and literature, it makes this book brilliant. And that's evidence for its inspiration. When you really think about it, we'll come back to talking about evidence in just a moment. But that, that is a great definition of inspiration there on the screen right now. Again, that came from Kyle Butt's book, Behold the Word of God, which is one of the uh, sources I have used in the study of this class, if you want to check out that book. Now let's talk about a couple of implications of inspiration. One implication of this definition of inspiration is the idea of completeness. Inspiration implies completeness. When I say that, what I mean is that every part of the Bible is inspired. That the Bible in its entirety is the Word of God. There's no part of the Bible that is not inspired. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, which is a, going to be a popular verse for us throughout this quarter, he said that all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And Peter, Peter equated the writings of Paul with Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. If you want to turn there, go ahead, but listen to what Peter says about Paul's writings. He said, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them on, of these matters. There are some things in them there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Now think about this. Peter is saying in his own letter, you know that guy Paul, sometimes he's hard to understand. And he goes on, verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 3. There are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Paul just said, excuse me, Peter just said that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand and people twist what he says just like they twist other scriptures. His language is associating Paul's writings on an equal plane with the other scriptures. The point is this, Peter is giving inspired authority to Paul's writings. Because all of the Bible is the Word of God. Complete, completeness also means that the Bible is all that is needed in order for us to understand God's will. Going back to that 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and you probably know the second half, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be what? Complete. Equipped for every good work. So when we say that, when we talk about inspiration, inspiration infers, implies completeness. That everything that's in the text of Scripture is inspired and that everything you need to know is in there. For for salvation. The other thing that inspiration implies is inerrancy. In other words, that it's all truth. 
Think about this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18 tells us that God cannot lie. That's a repeated claim throughout Scripture, actually, that God cannot lie. John chapter 17 and verse 17 tells us that God's Word is truth. So that means whatever subject the Bible speaks on, it speaks truly. God, by His providence, guided authors who as humans were capable of errors. He guided them to refrain from error when writing His book. If we believe in inspiration, we must believe in the Bible's lack of error. Think about this. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. But when it touches upon scientific matters in its teaching, it does so without error. And the Bible is not a history book, but where secular and sacred history meet in its pages, the Bible speaks inerrantly. If the Bible is not correct in factual and empirical matters which are verifiable, then how could it be trusted in spiritual matters which are not subject to such tests? If we believe in inspiration, we by default must believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. But here's the thing. Can we prove that the Bible is inspired? Can we prove that the Bible is inerrant? Can we prove that the Bible is indeed the Word of God? That's the premise of Kyle Butt's book, Behold the Word of God. He makes this point. He says, a claim of inspiration does not necessarily prove anything. It is a necessary trait of inspiration, but it is not a sufficient one. In other words, just because a book of particular writing claims inspiration is not positive proof of its inspiration. Can you think of another book besides the Bible that claims inspiration. The Book of Mormon. Any others? Say what? Yes. I heard one back there. I th- Say it again. Quran. We're not the only people who hold a text and claim it's inspired. We have some that fall under the broad category of Christendom that say that there are other inspired writings, and then we have some that fall under a different world religion that claim inspired writings. We could even go with the Hindu Vedas, and and, and there are others. So how do you know which text is inspired versus the others? Well, there are some things that you can look at as evidence, and I want to share three of those with you for the rest of this class time tonight. As we pointed out last week, the Bible was written over the course of 1,300 to 1,600 years by as many as 40 different men whose, whose educational and cultural backgrounds varied extensively. But despite that fact, the 66 books that compose the Bible, they fit together perfectly. And such unity is impossible without divine involvement. So the unity of the Bible serves as evidence for its inspiration. And I want to go walk through three ways in which we can see unity in Scripture that supports its claim of inspiration. 
You can see it in narrative. You can see narrative unity. So just to give you one story that you can see narrative unity with, let's focus on Noah and the flood. Because Noah's story isn't just told in Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9. Reference will be made about Noah throughout the text of Scripture. And when we talk about narrative unity, what we're looking for is, is, is the information about this particular narrative event consistent throughout the entirety of the Bible? So with Noah, and we have his story in chapter 6 through 9 of Genesis, but you have reference made to him in places like 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 1. Now 1 Chronicles chapter 1 is a genealogical list. It simply provides the detail that Noah's children's names are Sham, Ham, and Japheth. That's not a big deal to you and I, but what's important to notice is that the information about Noah and his children in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 1 matches the information provided in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 13 about the names of his children and the number of his children. In Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 9, reference is made to Noah when Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, said, This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. What's happening here is Isaiah communicating on behalf of God is referencing God's oath recorded in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 11. You may recall that oath says, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So when we go to Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 9, reference is made back to the covenant promise made in Genesis Excuse me, in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 11, and it's consistent with each other. We can also go to Matthew chapter 24. Between verse 36 and 39, Jesus makes reference to Noah. You may remember his statements because they're, um, they start with this. This is Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so, we will, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, Jesus doesn't go into great detail here about the flood or about Noah, but he identifies a couple of facts. A couple of facts that are consistent with the story of Noah. For instance, he identified Noah as the one in whose time the flood occurred. And he identified Noah as the one who entered the ark. That's consistent with what we're told in Genesis chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, as well as chapter 7 and verse 7. Additionally, Jesus indicated that everyone outside the ark was swept away or perished. And that's consistent with what we're told in Genesis chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. So even though Jesus didn't go into great detail, every aspect of what he says agrees with the information we find back in the Genesis account. Same can be said for Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, where Noah is identified as a member of the, hall, the faith hall of fame. Um, and it just simply says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events 
as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Once again, this passage is confirming some details related to the Genesis account, such as the fact that Noah is the one who's constructing the ark, that his entire household is saved, and that the world in that time period was condemned. Also, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20. In 1 Peter 3 verse 20, Peter says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So Peter identifies the exact number of people, which is consistent with what you'll read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 13 through, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 7, verse 13. So you have, there are other texts I could mention in regards to Noah. The point is simple that when you journey through Scripture and you come across references to Noah, every time you do, the story is consistent with what is recorded in Genesis 6 through 9. Now, you could say, oh, well, maybe they just all had access to the book of Genesis when they wrote. Well, that's quite possible. Or it could simply be evidence that God made sure everything remained consistent with each other. He, he, He guaranteed narrative unity throughout the text of Scripture. And narrative unity is not the only form of unity we can come across. There's also moral unity. Is Scripture consistent on the ethics and morals that it presents. I'm going to use the simplest one, lying, as an example. So we, we, know, we know that Mosaic Law in the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's the Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20 version. And, and from that point forward, consistently Scripture identifies lying as breaking God's will. It identifies lying as a sin consistently. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, the, the things that the Lord hates. One of, the things, one of those things identified by the Lord that he hates is a false witness who breathes out lies. You can get to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, where Paul provides the instruction for us to put away falsehood and speak the truth with your neighbor. And then, of course, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 where we're told that all liars will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. An indication in that passage, or an association in that passage, I should say, of lying with the sins that will be punished in eternity. So you can take a subject like lying, or you can go take a subject like adultery, or you can go take a subject like homosexuality, and you can find these moral, ethical issues and find them consistently addressed throughout Scripture, that's moral unity, and that's evidence that this is more than just a man-made book. And then, of course, there's one more category under unity, doctrinal unity. This is finding a particular doctrinal subject and following it through the course of Scripture to see if it is consistent. The one example I want to give you is that of elder qualifications. Now, when you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1, you have these two lists of elder qualifications, and they are consistent with each other. One of the qualifications that's specifically mentioned in both passages, you can see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 and Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, and that is that an elder must be the husband of one wife. 
Now, those are the only two qualification lists in the New Testament. So you'd think, okay, so I've only got two passages to go by. That's not much to show unity. But think about this. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, Peter identifies himself as an elder in the church. He specifically says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now, in order for Peter to be an elder, we know he's an apostle, we know he's a leader of the church, but in order for him to be an elder, he has to be the husband of one wife, right? Do we know if Peter's the husband of one wife? Well, if you go to Luke chapter 4, you read a story in the ministry of Jesus where he enters Simon Peter's house and finds Simon Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever. If Simon Peter has a mother-in-law, what does that of necessity mean he also has? A wife. So Peter is an elder in the church according to 1 Peter chapter 5, and that's consistent with the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 because Peter is the husband of one wife. Conversely, you can think about Paul. Paul is an apostle. Paul is this phenomenal missionary. Paul is a guy you would want to be an elder at your congregation. But Paul is never identified as an elder. And why is he not an elder? Because you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul specifically says in verse 8 that he is single. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So doctrinal consistency can also be seen in the fact that there's no contradictions. If Paul was identified as an elder in Scripture, guess what? That's a contradiction of the elder qualifications. Peter is identified as an elder. Paul is not because Peter meets the qualification and Paul doesn't. So you can look for doctrinal unity as well. And I know that when I talk about the story of Noah and the flood or I talk about lying or I talk about the elder qualifications, those are very simple things. There are much more complicated matters that can show you doctrinal unity. My goal tonight isn't to exhaust that list or to show you every one of them, but to reveal to you how it's possible for unity in the, in the text of Scripture to serve as evidence of its inspiration. Because guess what? If all of us in here sit down and wrote a document, apart from one another, not looking over each other's shoulders, how unified could that text be? It would be impossible. Even if I put a sentence up on the screen and said, everybody write about that sentence. If we had a starting point that everybody had, it's still going to be varied, but not with the Bible. The other thing we can look to to help with our evidence of inspiration is we can look to the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Now, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. It's not a medical textbook. That's not God's objective in recording information in this book. But there are occasions when God makes statements that have scientific and medical inferences with them, particularly in the Old Testament. And so the issue you have to think about is when God asserts something in Scripture that has a relationship to science or medicine, 
is it consistent with what we know about science and medicine? So one of the easiest examples to appeal to is what I have titled their bloodletting. For centuries, the greatest medical experts believed that if you're sick, more than likely there's something wrong in your blood, and we need to drain your blood. So they had a process called bloodletting that would either involve the application of leeches onto you. Who comes up with this stuff? Who sits and allows a doctor to do this to them? But they would, they would either attach leeches to you or they would cut a, cut a vein in your arm and let it, let it drain out for a little bit. I mean, we know that's how our first president died. George Washington was, being, was doing the bloodletting process because he had a cold. More than likely, he had strep throat, they now believe. You don't bloodlet for strep throat, do you? Because we understand how to treat that now. Here's the interesting thing. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 17 and verse 11, a very simple statement is made. The life of the flesh is in the blood. That's all it says. There's no medical assertion there whatsoever. There's no scientific assertion behind that. But what it conveys is the truth that without your blood, you cannot live. Your blood is a necessity for life. And that's what science has now proven in the centuries since bloodletting was used, is that 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 is not a good way to treat medical conditions. The Bible was also advanced on the subject of germs. There's a fascinating section in this book, uh, in Kyle Butt's book, about the fact that in the, I believe it was in the 1800s, there was a high mortality rate for those who were giving birth. And there was one doctor who came to the conclusion that maybe I need to make those in my hospital who are delivering babies wash their hands before they do it. Now, we're in this pandemic where washing hands has become a frequent ritual, right? But there was a time period where even in the delivery of babies, they didn't worry about going and sanitizing their hands before they did this. In fact, the description of this situation that I came across and the explanation of it as I tried to... uh, uh, recover it once more, is that these, uh, these doctors in the hospital might spend their mornings down in the morgue dealing with deceased bodies, and then they would go up and deliver a baby. We know today that you have to sanitize, that you have to uh, uh, do something to eliminate bacteria and other germs before you cross-contaminate in some fashion. Look at Numbers chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. The Bible was advanced. God was advanced on the subject of cross-contamination. Numbers chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, this was the instruction given to the Israelites, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. Hey, let me ask you, what's the CDC's recommendation right now on quarantining? If you show no other symptoms, the minimum quarantine time is now at seven days. 
Huh. Fascinating. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. In fact, you have here germ guidance. You also have uh, quarantine uh, principles in Scripture. If you go to Leviticus chapter 13, since I've already brought that up, dealing with leprosy. The leprous person, this is what it says, Leviticus 13 in verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip. Your text might say cover his mustache. And cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Why do you think God said, if you have this contagious disease, you have to cover your upper lip? It's a mask policy. Mask mandatory for lepers. You cover your upper lip so your spit ain't spewing on people. God is the original CDC director. Now think about kosher laws. The dietary laws of the Israelites. Leviticus 11 lists those. It'd be hard for me to make it as a, uh, as a Jewish person because of these laws. I mean, one of the first ones is you can't have pork. No bacon, no ham, no pork chops. Doesn't that just sound miserable? But there's reason for it. Leviticus 11 verse 7 says, The pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Pork, because pigs are scavengers and they eat practically anything, they often consume parasites and bacteria. And the only way to ensure that you won't get that is to fully cook that meat. Fully cooking pork can kill those harmful organisms, but failure to cook it completely can really endanger you. God is aware of what you eat and, and how it could endanger you. So he puts policies in place that will keep you from digesting something that could harm you. The same thing goes for seafood. In Leviticus 11 and verse 12, everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. That rules out some really great shellfish. Now, I've never been one to eat oysters. I've never intrigued me. It just looks like snot in a shell to me. But, there are, but I lived on the Gulf Coast for 12 years, and there are people who just love their oysters. The problem with oysters, again, if they're not cooked, if you eat them raw, you risk really endangering yourself because they can have potentially deadly bacteria in them. So think about this, in a time when the proper handling and preparation of food is not necessarily there, God is saying that the best course of action is simply to not eat these things. There's a, a rule against eating bats in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 19. Now, I don't think any of us are trying to eat bats, but there's a reason he outlawed it, because bats are the worst carriers of rabies there is. And then you can look at Leviticus chapter 11, verse 29 through 31, where reptiles are ruled out. Again, I'm okay with this one. Um, I'm not really interested in eating snake unless I'm stuck out in the wilderness and it's all I can find to eat. But the reason reptiles are ruled out is because they are 
really high rate carriers of salmonella, even just touching them can expose you to salmonella. So God in his wisdom is putting in place dietary restrictions for the safety of his people. And that can be confirmed by what we know scientifically and medicinally today. Interestingly, even, even the practice of circumcision has its place in understanding of science and medicine. At that time, the Israelites were the only ones doing this. And what's been, and now, you don't leave the hospital without this at least being offered. And what we know now, scientifically, is that circumcision can lessen the chance of getting certain diseases and infections. It specifically reduces the incidence of urinary tract infection in boys and virtually eliminates the chance of penile cancer. God isn't, God in choosing his mode of um, the sign of the covenant, that's his emphasis. But even in doing that, he implements a medicinal practice that we utilize today, that we understand now as beneficial. Isn't our God amazing? We can go through scripture and look at scientific evidence like this, and it backs its inspiration because it's consistently accurate with what we know about science and medicine. I could go on with more examples of this, and I have a whole other category that I'll lead off with next week on the historical accuracy of the Bible. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. We've already had our 10-minute and 5-minute bell, and those were really short in between, so I'm expecting that third bell to come along quickly. But I'm going to stop here. I'm grateful for your participation, your attention, and uh, we'll resume next week by looking at the historical accuracy of the Bible as it relates to inspiration, and then we'll move forward from there. Let's close out with a word of prayer this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we stand before you in awe because... It's amazing to look at your word and just realize how perfect it is. Thank you for giving us your word so that we can be complete and so that we can know what all we need to do to receive salvation. Lord, bless us in our study throughout this quarter as we continue to look at the uh, uh, compilation of your word. And may it be a benefit to us as we deepen our faith and as we defend our faith. Lord, as we go through the remainder of this week, help us to represent you as we should as your children. And Lord, may we go and do to the best of our ability. We love you, Lord, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.